podcast. This is episode 13, recorded November 30th, 2012. I'm your host, Pat Richard, and today I'm joined by Exchange MCM John Cook, Link MVPs Justin Morris and Tom Arbuthnot, and Exchange Architect Dave Stork. And we have a very special guest today from the Link product group, Senior Technical Writer Rick Kingsland. So we're going to talk a lot about Link today. John, what's new with you this week? Hey, how are you? Glad to be back. It's been a while. Uh, sorry, I missed the last two, especially when Greg was on. I got to listen to it and was quite sad that I wasn't on. But uh, even my family enjoyed listening to it in the car because we I locked up in the car on the way to go into Thanksgiving, and I had no choice but to listen to that podcast. So it was good. <laughs> good. Justin, what's happening on your side of the world? Uh, so I've been engaged, uh, a, a big customer here in the UK since uh, January, actually, to... Um, replace their entire uh, Mitel environment um, with uh, Microsoft Link. Uh, so it's 18,000 voice seats there. So we're just getting on the tail end of um, infrastructure, parts of that, and then now ramping up their user deployment. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Tom, what's happening? Hi, guys. Uh, all good here. Just back from the MVP Open Day in the UK. Um, so a lot of good networking there. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to the, uh, the, the Link guest on the podcast this week. As am I. Uh, and and Dave, what's happening on your side of the world? Well, and, uh, uh, finishing up uh, uh, an Exchange 2010 deployment, and uh, already in the in talks of several Exchange 2013 projects. So uh, exciting times uh, for uh, the early 2013 uh, year ahead. So, oh, good. Yeah, we just yeah. Uh, rolled to uh, 2013 internally, and we're starting to get some uh, some interest for uh, some projects around the first of the year. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I have some some greenfield organizations, so that 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 is a positive. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And our special guest, Rick Kingsland from the Link Product Group. And uh, if you read the Link uh, Product Group blog, then you've uh, probably seen some of uh, Rick's work, uh, such as the Auto Discover and Link Windows Store app article, and the one I was just reading uh, earlier today. Uh, using the data pa- uh, database path map parameter to deploy uh, databases for Link 2013. So, Rick, welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, thanks, Pat. Um, I'm uh, I've been with Microsoft for about uh, about eight years. Started out as a uh, consultant uh, and got involved with uh, with Link originally because of uh, the OCS 2000R2 and OCS 2007 ResKit. And what might be of interest is uh, I originally cut my teeth in uh, getting involved with Microsoft uh, from the standpoint of being an active directory MVP. So I was, uh, uh, I was an MVP for active directory services for about three years. Oh, I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I've got such a high affinity for the MVP program is because I understand the sacrifices that you guys make. Well, we we certainly appreciate the fact that you go to bat for us uh, quite often and uh, keep us informed on things. I try. (laughs) Great. Well, uh, moving into our top stories uh, for this episode, um, you may recall that last episode, Greg Taylor from the Exchange Product Group was on, and he uh, uh, intimated that he had an article coming out about publishing Exchange 2013 
uh, through TMG. And I'm happy to announce that that article is now available online on the, the ELO blog. And we'll have a link to that on our summary page. Has anybody uh, gone through it and, and, and tested what uh, Greg wrote about? I read it, but I didn't test anything yet. Uh, but I thought at first that it was, well, it's probably mostly the same as 2010, but there are some important differences, which were uh, good good to know. So uh, everybody should read that article if you're involved in Exchange. Yeah, it was good, good stuff. Right, and of course, um, TMG is coming to end of life at the, actually tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. Um, so if you if you're thinking about like we've been telling all of our clients, if you're even thinking about deploying TMG anytime soon, you got to buy those licenses before December first, uh, or you won't be able to get to them. Well, too bad there's in, not like in, an in, infinite. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, in the Netherlands, you just have two and a half hours or something like that before, before <laughs> you can buy them anymore. So. Hurry. Too bad there's not like a finite finite supply of licenses. We could buy them all up and then resell them at a, at a, at a profit down, down the road. <laughs> so you're going to stand on a street corner with a dark jacket? Psst, hey, hey want to buy a TMG you, license? You need a proxy? Come here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good. Um, from the Link side of the world, um, Link and Yahoo Federation, uh, the end of life has been announced for that. And... Um, as of September 1st, you're no longer able to purchase or renew agreements for Yahoo Federation. And uh, Justin, you wanted to speak about that a little. Um, yeah, so basically what's happening is that because um, Yahoo are kind of pulling out of the whole Federation agreement, um, this is going to start wrapping up in about June 2013. So um, people won't be able to federate with Yahoo Messenger using Ops Communicator and Link um, after that date. And so I think... This will probably impact some customers, but I don't think it's a massive problem. Um, I can't name anybody I know that uses Yahoo Messenger anymore. So, but um, yeah, these other guys that uh, want to sort of chime in on this one, might have some other uh, some other takes on it. Yeah, I worked at uh, at a company uh, several years back, and they used Yahoo IM as their corporate IM infrastructure, but. Uh, looking at my XMPP gateway, I don't, I don't see a lot of stuff going out to Yahoo anymore. Uh, next up, uh, System Center Advisor for Link Server 2010 was made available this past week. Um, and System Center Advisor is a cloud service. Uh, it allows you to assess your server configuration to avoid some, some issues um, and uh, some, pr some pretty nice features in there. And uh, there was a blog post on Nexthop. Uh, that details that information, and uh, we'll get a, a link up there on our summary page. And John, I know you're waiting for this. Uh, Surface Pro uh, pricing and details have been announced. Um, for, for those of you waiting for uh, this fabulous device, uh, Microsoft has announced that um, two flavors of the device will come out, one with uh, 64 gigs coming in at uh, $900 and one for uh, 128 gigs coming at $1,000, and uh, I've seen <laughs> some people trying to compare the Surface Pro to uh, an iPad. I think that's the wrong comparison. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah. they don't in, understand the concept. Obviously. Right. I, I've got a Surface RT, and um, I can see the comparison there. You know, you can only run apps run from the Microsoft uh, uh, store, just like an iPad with the... Uh, 
the Apple Store. Um, but the Surface Pro, I think it's it's better comparison up against a MacBook or a MacBook Air. Um, John, what's your about that? <laughs> yeah, says our big Apple fanboy there, but. Uh, John, what do you? You've been pretty happy with your RT, other than a yeah, couple minor issues. Yeah, that was another. Yeah, that's another episode I was lamenting uh, I missed too. Was when you guys were talking about this, the RT? Because yes, I have mine, and I've I've been really happy with it. Actually, I was I was in New York uh, the past couple of weeks and at a client site, and I can't tell you the kind of crowd it, it draws. And you know, you want to be completely honest, but you want to not maybe you know uh, talk about some of the shortcomings, but. But I mean, I'm really happy. I just hope that they fix some of the problems and, and just, you know, it's not even so much bugs, it's just functionality changes. Um, I hope they iterate faster than they have been. But generally, I've been really happy. But yeah, I, I think the pro uh, for people like us is there's just so many things you get to and then you go, oh, I can't sell that or oh, I can't do that. I need Snoop or I need something. I can't do anything on the desktop. And RT, you know, uh, it doesn't allow you to install anything outside of what came with the units on the desktop side. So. It can be really limiting sometimes, um, but I think generally the device is awesome. I've been using it um, quite a bit, uh, especially with uh, RD web apps uh, on 2012. I've been using that as sort of a, a way to get you know the rest of the office suite that you can't have locally, even through a terminal service. You know, it integrates really well through that uh, um, RDP um, um, MX uh, app. Uh, so that's something that the iPad can't do. Period. You know, so that's that's one of those things where this is where, this is where it shines. You know, the kind of extending past what the iPad can ever ever do. So from from a UC perspective, um, do you think that the Surface Pro is is going to be um, another reason to get away from laptops and workstations? Do you think it's going to be a valid uh, solution for for people on the go? I, I do. I mean, I think the Surface Pro really is a laptop. I mean, it's it's more of a laptop than than uh, a tablet, certainly, but can do that kind of uh, tablet ish role. I mean, in the specs are what? It's, it's maybe a half a pound heavier than the, than the Surface, so it's not going to be, like, you know, hugely uh, problematic. The one thing I have been, uh, the other thing I did uh, get, get a chance to do in New York was a guy had the Samsung... Um, a Series uh, 7? Uh, no, the, the, the new one, the... the uh, the, the 700T or whatever it's called? Yeah, exactly, or 500 maybe, the, 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 the Atom-based one. And I gotta say, I I think we talked about this on, on other episodes. You know, I I I was very skeptical about these Clover Trail uh, based Atom processors, but I, I ran a thing and I ran it next to my RT, and I gotta tell you, uh, it ran the same apps. Uh, I was comparing like that that Pinball FX. This the the Clover Trail ran really really well, and uh, it's fanless. So, you know, I mean, Surface notwithstanding, because this got an i five, I think, right? Um, but uh, this. I I might have a second opinion now about uh, what these uh, uh, pro tablets, you know, you know, full Windows 8 or what do you want to call them, tablets uh, will will be able to do with even these Atom processors because I was shocked how well it ran and uh, it should get it may not get you know ARM battery life but it should be better than probably an i5 right I would guess so. Yeah, well, one one thing that I found found a bit disappointing was the. Uh, battery life of the Surface Pro. I mostly expected already that it would be around half of the RT, so I think that, that uh, makes it about four uh, four hours uh, uh, of of battery life. Um, so that that was a bit disappointing. So I, I think that um, if I have to choose between the the RT and the Pro, uh, I'm coming from a tablet, uh, so I'm I'm looking for an iPad replacement. I would uh, prefer the RT. Uh, but it could could be uh, something different when the Clover Trail 
uh, as you say, is is performing as as uh, as the normal uh, Intel processors, and with the better life of RT, that could be a golden uh, combination for me. Yeah, I I can tell you, having had my RT since the first day they were available, I I've been um, pretty darn happy with it. A couple little quirks, um, but for for a Gen One device, I think it's I think it's fabulous. And uh, I'm certainly in line to get a, a, a Surface Pro, and I'll relegate my RT one to, you know, testing in, in client environments and stuff like that. But I'll tell you, I think uh, I think Microsoft's got a real winner on their hands with this one. I, I can't wait to to see the UC experience on the the Surface Pro. Yeah, I just I can't see the Surface Pro getting any traction in the consumer space though, because I think it's really only going to have application in sort of enterprise where people want that tablet form factor, but they want the sort of enterprise-grade software capabilities and domain join and that kind of thing. And Outlook, which, yeah. you, can't, which you can't get on the RT. So, And moving on to our next uh, topic, uh, UAG 2010 Service Pack 3 is, is in the works, and uh, there was a blog post on uh, one of the Microsoft blogs about what's coming in this Service Pack. And among the features is uh, some publishing rules for Exchange 2013 and SharePoint 2013, uh, but nothing mentioned about Link, uh, which is uh, somewhat disappointing. So maybe maybe we'll get a surprise with that. Uh, of course, this goes back to our uh, uh, TMG note a few minutes ago, where uh, you know after December 1st you can't get TMG anymore. The Microsoft solution is going to be UAG, and uh, we'll have to I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, what the experience is going to be for dealing with Link. And speaking of Link things, uh, a new cumulative update for Link conferencing server. And uh, Tom, you had looked into that. Just wanted to flag it. There's not not much detail around it at the moment, to be honest. It's only just recently gone up, and it's uh, just one of the generic descriptions of uh, improves performance and, and fixes bugs. So I wouldn't rush out to put it on your servers, but just wanted to make people aware it's, it's about... Okay. Uh, John, you had uh, had heard about this uh, update roll-up 5 for Exchange Server 2010 Service Pack 2 has been pulled. Uh, do you have any info on that? Um, well, yeah. Uh, I, I think that, um, well, I first noticed uh, via a blog post from Tony Redmond that he, or, or what it was Paul Robichaud, if I pronounce his name correctly, um, that the rollup update 5 for suspect 2 for exchange 2010 was re- withdrawn uh, because some users were reporting issues with uh, database availability group um, um much more than that uh, isn't actually known at least not not with me so um i I've, it's now pulled and um, um I, I think there there isn't even a blog post on on the elo uh, exchange team blog uh, uh website so um what the deal there is isn't very clear to me uh, but it's it's uh, yeah uh, i'm not very happy with this because this is the i think the fourth well i don't, I don't know how many times a, a roll-up update for exchange 2010 has been pulled now um and it, it it's really uh, worrisome uh, actually yeah I, I think it's definitely some kind of a space where uh, we've seen some troubling results and um, Microsoft has gotten a little bit of egg on their face for that. Um, I, I, I do commend them on identifying an issue and, and trying to rectify it quickly, but 
um, you know, as, as Tony Redmond has mentioned a couple times in his in his blog, um, it, it leads one to question how much testing goes on before these are pushed out the door. But yeah, um, well, as I, as I understand it, uh, rollup updates aren't tested the same way as service packs are, um, and and that that probably uh, uh, well, if well, the service packs are uh, at least as as far as I know uh, always been very good. Uh, so perhaps they have to look at the testing track for all the roll-up updates and perhaps even use the same uh, testing track as they do for the service packs. But, um, uh, well, I, I do think that the service packs also uh, are deployed with tap customers um, and the roll-up updates aren't. So with the service packs, they, uh, Microsoft gets real-life uh, response before they publish it uh, publicly and with roll-up updates, they don't. So. That could be uh, another difference with uh, well the, the chance that a bug uh, pops up or anything like that. But um, I, I do really hope that they tackle their their internal. Well, I, I see it's some somewhat of an, an 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 indication that their internal testing process isn't that good uh, for update rollups, and they really should do something about it because the the they build up a, a real good trust with. With me over the years, with uh, with exchange updates until um, I think that was uh, 2010 Swift One rollup update three, I believe, uh, and from that and that's about a year, two years back or something like that, um, and since then it has been somewhat troublesome, and uh, yeah, it it uh, well. Even so, uh, it's always wise to test a, a roll-up update or an update first pack or whatever in a, in a testing lab uh, uh, before publishing it in, in, a, in a production environment. Uh, but yeah, uh, this doesn't help with the trust for Microsoft and Exchange. And especially, uh, there's still a lot of customers who uh, are waiting for the, uh, have a rule we wait for so pack one and, and this kind of, uh, negative news doesn't help with uh, early adopters and, and, and stuff like that. So I hope they're really going to fix their testing process. Yeah, me too. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, you should always test uh, patches and things like that in a lab. And we have discussed uh, building exchange and link labs in previous uh, episodes here. So feel free to check those out. Um, and John, uh, you were—I think you were having this problem too with uh, Windows Phone. Oh, oh, you don't have a Windows Phone, do you, John? Okay. So Windows Phone Eight. Some people were reporting that uh, the phones would spontaneously reboot, and of course, that's not good if you're in the middle of a phone call or a link conversation. And Microsoft has identified that uh, uh, they know what the cause is, and that they will be coming out with a with a solution for it sometime in December. Um, I don't have anything else as to when in December. Uh, hopefully it'll be sooner than later. Um, doesn't, uh, doesn't help that uh, Microsoft's really pushing Windows Phone 8 and uh, this little quirk comes out. So hopefully uh, it comes out and, uh, and, and resolves the problem. Uh, Justin, did you have other information on that? Uh, no, no, no additional information other than what you've mentioned, um, just that uh, it affects me directly. Uh, I've got a um, HTC Windows Phone 8X that I picked up uh, on the first day they were available here in the UK, um, and it actually it re- rebooted me, uh, rebooted on me on that very first day, and then um, sometimes like it'll happen maybe two or three times in a day, and then it won't happen for days on end, and then 
it might happen again. It's like super random. So um, maybe some kind of memory issue or what. I do notice sometimes that uh, some of the system sounds like stutter a little bit um, if the phone's been on for a while. So I don't know if there's like some sort of memory leak issue in the current build that will hopefully be fixed with um, this release next uh, next month. Great. Next up is the Outlook Configuration Analyzer tool, or OCAT, uh, version 2.0. Um, a couple days ago, it was released on Microsoft's website. And what it does is it provides a quick and easy method to look at your Outlook profile and mailbox for common configuration issues uh, that may be causing you a problem. And uh, I know that this tool is, has been a godsend in our current uh, client uh, environment where they're migrating um, about 15,000 people uh, in a cross-forest migration with Exchange, and this has really helped uh, identify some issues for some of those users. So uh, check it out. We'll have a link for the OCAT tool on our uh, summary page for this episode. Next up is the Practice Accelerator sessions for Link Server 2010. About two weeks ago, Microsoft uh, released some more training inf information for uh, getting your people up to speed on Link Server. Uh, so your engineers, your specialists, your your uh, salespeople, everything uh, can attend this training and become uh, uh, better aware of what uh, Link 2010 can do. So check it out, and we'll have a link for that on our summary page. And a big change in the Remote Connectivity Analyzer. So if, uh, if you've used this before to test uh, connectivity from the outside for your environment, and you've used the testexchangeconnectivity.com site, or the link version, testocsconnectivity.com. Um, Microsoft has made some, some tremendous improvements in the wizard now uh, with much better results and a much smoother interface. So check it out at uh, testexchangeconnectivity.com, and the link test is at the same site. So now you can, you can test everything from one, from one site. So, sorry, I wanted to add some, some stuff. I'd... Sure. Go ahead, Dave. Um, well, the, the one of the, the things of the remote connectivity analyzer um, I, I really like and already helped me a lot was the um, the, the uh, client. There is a tab with the uh, with a client beta on it, and um, it's just a, a, a tool that you can download and run in your local environment, and that. Um, uh, allows you to test, uh, well, the internal uh, DNS and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and in my case, um, I wanted to test the uh, certificate and, and, and uh, the auto-discovery uh, process and stuff like that. Uh, but we weren't uh, able to change our DNS records uh, just yet um, and change the certificate uh, that we wanted to use. Uh, so um, we could implement everything on the, the, the low bands and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but I just downloaded that tool on my own laptop. I changed the, the host file of my laptop that it would point the correct um, uh, domain names to the correct uh, uh, IP uh, addresses. And I could just run uh, the auto-discover process on my own laptop as if it were uh, externally and um, uh, just without any changes in the current uh, deployment. And that um, was for me an extreme, extremely helpful tool just to be able to, to uh, look at the process before I um, uh, put it in 
production. And I actually uh, found an issue with the certificate. Um, so uh, we're going to first uh, uh, troubleshoot that before we're going to use that certificate in a production environment. So um, it's it's uh, actually the the the, the Client tool is is a, a very good addition for me. So it already helped me with uh, with an issue. So good uh, good for Microsoft to uh, implement that. Uh, agreed, agreed. That'll definitely cut down some troubleshooting time internally. And uh, Tom, you uh, wanted to clear up some information about the Link Basic client. I know there's been some question about what it is and and how is it different than the full blown client. Yeah, so for those that don't know, the, uh, Microsoft have relinked, uh, released a Link 2013 basic client, and it's a, a free client to download. Um, I, I think the aim of it is if you've got a 365 account that doesn't give you Office Pro Plus, which is what you need for full Link 2013 client, you can download this free client and, and use it. So it's it's opening up Link potentially to a whole load of Office 365 users that might not have previously had access to Link just because they didn't have the the software client license. Um, it, it gives you almost everything that Link 2013 uh, full client gives you. Um, some of the stuff that's cut out is advanced calling features, um, which are mainly EV features that might not be applicable to a lot of 365 users today. So um, call park, call delegation, sim ring, all that kind of stuff. Um, some calendar uh, calendaring delegation, uh, gallery view video, OneNote sharing, recording, um, and the VDI plugin. None of those work with the basic client. They require the full client. But other than that, it's pretty similar to the, the full client. So um, if you've got a 365 account in particular and you don't have Office Pro Plus, this is a really awesome uh, freebie, and hopefully we'll see it uh, make Link more usage more prevalent with the, the 2013 release. The question is, why is it 300-sub meg? <laughs> it, so it's that big because it uses the uh, the Office 2013 installer. Right. So a lot of that is installer, and it, I mean you could say it's not ideal, but um, yeah, I could say it that. allows you to deploy in in a in the same way you deploy other uh, Office uh, 2013 uh, products. So you could deploy, just deploy via SCCM or something or policy if you want to yeah in exact in exactly the same way as you know how to deploy office 2010 or um you know the standard deployment tools will work for the the link 2013 client both basic and full i believe yeah and i get this question a lot and and i only know of you know you can go and do a custom office install from the office installer to just deploy if you just wanted to just deploy the link client but there's no does anyone know if there's any standalone like there used to be is there, and is there gonna be that anyone's heard that's just a standalone link client uh, don't, don't know from this end to be honest yeah. um, I haven't seen anything official about that yeah I've had some questions from clients yeah. about that and I haven't been able to get anything well I, I think if anything it's just a huge departure from like you know the past how many revisions where you've always just had a standalone client you install right and now it's got to come to the office so I mean I don't mind it being part of office I think it makes a lot of sense uh, but there's times when you just want that client <laughs> well I think that, that you know from within the link client there's um a lot of hooks into things like Outlook and OneNote and things like that. So, you know, I think they're trying to tie all that together, and, and with good reason, I suppose. But, yeah, it's it would be nice to have a separate download uh, just for that client for testing. All right, and the moment we've all been waiting for, uh, we get to ask Rick some questions. So Rick Kingsland is a senior technical writer with Microsoft, um, and he's he's the guy. 
He's the guy that does the documentation. And so we've got some questions for Rick. So, Rick, welcome. Thank you. And uh, I'll ask first, you, you did kind of touch about this a little bit in your in your intro, but um, how did you get involved uh, with Link and OCS? What, what version did you start with? I actually was involved uh, with uh, LCS 2005. So I in initially I was a was a consultant uh, consultant for Microsoft. That is actually how I was hired into the company, uh, and did uh, did deployments of Exchange, did deployments of just all different types of architectural uh, and server based products. Got interested in real time communications. Uh, deployed LCS 2005, SP1, and all the way up through uh, uh, Link 2010. Oh, great. And um, for a technical writer like yourself, what's a typical day look like for you? Well, you know, that's, that's really kind of an interesting question because I'm not even the typical technical writer. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that I am not based in Redmond. I am actually based in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I work out of my home office, so I'm up and working roughly, I would, I would say on a typical day, uh, 5 or 6 a.m. Redmond time. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why you see me out in, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the news groups, the forums, etc., answering questions well in advance so that uh, essentially I can kind of help to prime the day, if you will, for what the other technical writers and what some of the uh, cresting issues are for uh, uh, response by the product group. It gives me an opportunity to kind of triage some of the issues and provide answers where I can and uh, forward those, uh, uh, those document-based issues onto our team so that we can get, uh, uh, get some traction on them early. And so do you have um, a lab that you play with in order to uh, kind of clarify what you're writing about? Or do you typically just heads down uh, writing all day? No, I actually do have a lab. I've got uh, uh, got three uh, uh, virtual machine servers, Hyper-V servers that uh, that I have here, and the deployments that I have are split between uh, uh, OCS 2000 R2, 2010, and 2013. Allows me to go ahead and build out a uh, number of different types of scenarios so that I can realistically test anything. And, you know, for what it's worth, I have VMs all the way back to LCS 2003 that if I've got to go back and check out and test something really odd and esoteric, I can do it. So, you know, yeah, I... Uh, I, I pretty much have a tendency to try and stay on top of what what exactly the customers are asking and try and provide some clarity to the product rep folks that realistically have a much narrower bandwidth focus than, than I'm able to provide. Okay, and so um, do you get input from support, say PSS, on issues that they're seeing, or is it uh, traditionally just dealing with uh, the product group itself. Uh, 
No, I definitely get uh, get a lot of input from uh, uh, you know names that you guys have seen, like uh, uh, Dave Howe, Jeff Clark, uh, Christopher Tart, Mike Adkins, a lot of the guys in uh, beta engineering and uh, uh, CSS. Uh, there, there are some internal DLs that uh, that we use to communicate specifically on uh, UC collaboration issues, which naturally, anytime you toss UC into it, we're talking a much broader scope where something from SharePoint or Exchange could be included into a, a link problem. Uh, but uh, we we have a broad uh, a, a broad scope of people that do get involved. So those are typically field people, uh, your PFEs and your MCS consultants and TAMs that get involved in those conversations. And it, it helps me to uh, uh, understand kind of some of the issues that are being seen maybe before you guys even see it, which is always good if we can kind of front load stuff. Okay, interesting. And just out of curiosity, do you guys make good use of things like group chat and things like that? Uh, you know, I know it's out there, but uh, sadly, I don't. Um, it it may be out there. It may be functional and available, but um, I'm really not. And I, I, you know, I have to comment that that's really kind of sad because I think group chat is a uh, uh, is Really, a a super cool feature, but um, it, at least within our groups, I don't see a lot of use in it, and and that's odd. Hmm. I know that um, in in 2010, it was a little more involved to get it up and running and and maintain it, and in 2013, it's it's a lot more simplified using a single client and. Um, the set the setup's a lot easier and things like that. So we're I know that us as a company are, are we're seeing some more interest in it. So um, so interesting. Yeah, I think um, the, the single single client thing is huge. We're seeing a bit of a more of an uptick of use of it internally now. It's single client. I think that's the big win really. Oh, I, I, I agree completely, Tom. Uh, one one of the things that I do know is that uh, I I do get advertisements through the link client that hey there's a uh, group chat room available that you might want to look at. Um, have I ever actually taken that opportunity? Um, no, again, sadly, no. Uh, I, I should. There might be some excellent resources out there and uh, uh, some that we should be using. And I guess I'm going to have to look into that. That is an excellent question. Well, we know that uh, I know from personal experience that anytime we've asked a question, Rick, you've always come back with the right answer. So I'm, yeah, I can see that you're making excellent use of the resources that you do use. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. And uh, our next question uh, comes from Stahl Hansen, who couldn't make it today. And uh, he says, we love the resource kit for OCS and Link. What are the plans for the resource kit for Link 2013? You know, oddly, I was just thinking about that uh, about that today. Rui Maximo, who has always been one of the big drivers for the ResKit book, uh, I, as as some of you may know, uh, I was involved initially on the OCS 2007. I contributed a couple chapters to that. I did six chapters for the R2 book. 
uh, and was involved with the early planning and uh, uh, some of the logistics around the Link Server 2010 until I got pulled off to Core Docs. We know there's interest in the 2013 book. The only problem is, is that we are, are not confident that we would be able to get, uh, that we would be able to make the business case. You know, and, and let's make no mistake. Everything in Microsoft is, is really all about making a business case to spend capital funds to do something. Um, it's, it's not that the link 2000, well, let's, let's put it this way. Uh, the R2, the R2 book, though well received, uh, was not well bought. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of copies published, though a lot of those ended up, unfortunately, languishing in warehouses. That is one of the reasons why you saw the model for the res kit for 2010 change dramatically. Um, we knew that that format needed to be done. We knew that there was a need for it, and we were able to gain uh, support internally. Uh, but publishing it was not a possibility. Now, we do have some very, very creative and innovative ways for doing a 2013 book, which is going to minimize uh, the amount of actual internal resources to get this done. Uh, I, I, because the plans are really in the planning stages right now, Oddly, being called plans and being in the planning stage, kind of, you know, that's that's synchronous. Um, but they are extremely preliminary, so we we are thinking about it. Uh, initially, we were, you know, we were we were told this this won't happen, uh, and it was all a funding issue. However, we, we believe that we might have a way to do this with minimal funding requirements from Microsoft. So the, the best I can say is there may be a Link 2013 res kit, though at this point I can't really give any solid plan for it. Uh, but if we come to you and ask you to help, don't be surprised. <laughs> cool. Great. Yeah, feel free, Rick. That's what we're here for. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know, and you guys have never turned down an opportunity. Uh, interesting info. Uh, Tom, you had a couple of questions that you wanted to ask Rick. Yeah, um, nothing in particular, really. I guess uh, the, the first question, Rick, really, is um, like the the sheer amount of documentation for, for Link Server is, is pretty insane. Where, where do you even begin with a new release of documenting it? I, I guess from what I've read, you start on the 2010 stuff and then move forward, but how's that work? Well, yeah, realistically, uh, 2010 to 2013 was, was not as big of a challenge as R2 to 2010. That, that change in structure and the sheer number of new features is really kind of the, the telling tale of 
a massive change in the way that the documentation um, evolved. Uh, 2013 to 2010, or uh, pardon me, 2010 to 2013 was more of going back and taking a look at the features and determining what exactly was updated here and what do we need to say about it. So, for example, the majority of what I did was anything and everything to do with external access. So if, if you take a look at what changed between 2010 and 2013 for external access, we had some dramatic changes in auto-discover, and we had the addition of XMPP. So I was able to spend a lot of time on really clarifying the message around edge servers, uh, port protocol security flows, uh, and trying to make that a little bit cleaner and a little bit more succinct for people to understand and comprehend, because that's a huge subject. External access is probably the single most complicated piece of link server bar none. You know, and... and people are continually having problems with stun, turn, and ice. I know that there were problems going on today in just setting up this call. I was just going to say, right, I was going to say, we had problems just getting on the call. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it is a huge and it's a complex issue. And for, for the novice, it is, it is massively difficult to understand because these are very, very complex and esoteric uh, concepts for people to grasp. So putting that in a way that they can actually understand it and be able to say, oh, okay, I understand what that means, and when that problem comes up, I'm confident that I can troubleshoot that problem. Um, it's it's not always as clean cut, and they're still complex. But part of uh, uh, part of my focus was was making sure that a the new features were covered, but b we really clarified and laser focused the message about how the edge server really works and what it does and how it accomplishes what it, uh, uh, what it is doing. So my, my next topic is security, which dovetails directly into this. I mean, you know, what better for somebody external access than to write security documentation? So I'm, I'm really just in the nascent stages of that right now, and we should have that security documentation available uh, probably in a January time frame, but um, and so do you just rev rev the website whenever you've got content, just kind of ad hoc, and or do you do big batch updates? How's that work? Well, when we when we when we do a revision from one server version to another, uh, you know, we go through a number of betas and a number of technical reviews. And then we set a release date, which typically coincides, at least for 2013, it, it coincided with uh, our, our volume licensing customers having access to the bits. 
So our RTM documentation went live at the same time as volume license customers having access. If if let's say that I get uh, I get feedback from somebody that says you know I kind of question this or I think this is wrong. We go ahead and we take a look at it and we determine, oh, yeah, okay, there needs to be some clarity provided here. I go back into the documentation and I'll clarify if it's one sentence or if it's a paragraph. I'll go ahead and I'll clarify that message and then send it out to a couple people, take a look at it. Yeah, does this make sense? Okay, great. We have a consensus. And through our, our publishing tool, we go ahead and set it to publish, and it typically publishes on a Wednesday evening. So I just go ahead and set a flag on our documentation, publish this out to the website. It goes through staging, and it publishes, uh, as I said, typically on a Wednesday evening. So it's normally available for uh, readers on Thursday. Oh, that's, that's cool. It's, it's good to understand that, you know, it's a... Uh a constantly evolving kind of document for people that are looking at it. It's worth uh, worth checking in ever so often with it. Absolutely correct. And, you know, the one thing that I will warn everybody is that TechNet will always be up to date. Do not count on the chums being always up to date. They're quite a bit more resource intensive to produce. So we do not publish the chums as often. We hope at best to be able to do a quarterly quarterly release if we can figure out a way to do it monthly that's really at this point about as often as we can we can hope a chum to be updated that's good to know for for, for those that don't know um chums are the the downloadable help files so you can download the entire help file and read it offline um but yeah i think online is the way to go to get the latest and greatest and uh, that's always the, the preference Yes, concur. Cool. Um, so, yeah, so another question for you, Rick. Like, uh, you know, Microsoft's huge, so I guess you've got a, uh, a whole army of, uh, of writers that help you get this massive task together. Um, you, you seem to have enough time for uh, helping us on the, uh, the various DLs and, and pushing our, our questions into Microsoft, and we really appreciate that as, a, as, the, as the MVPs as a group. Um, so I kind of wanted to know who works with you on the on the documentation and, and how has that come together? Well, I'll I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I am I am close to an obsessive compulsive. So one of the reasons why you see me doing what I'm doing is because I am so totally passionate about this. Um, I, I admittedly spend a lot of personal time making sure that everybody has at least some avenue for answers. Uh, that is not, a, and not an expectation that we have of our technical writers. So that's something that I do because I like it. I have an affinity for our customers. Uh, but that's not to say that I don't have a wonderful group of people that I work with on a, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, for example, uh, and, and some names that you may or may not have heard, but these people certainly deserve to be recognized for the wonderful things that they do, uh, is, is Chris Dragish, who do, does a massive amount of planning for our internal deployment. Uh, we've got Seth Paul, who writes our uh, internal deployment documentation. Greg Stemp 
who is our PowerShell and Lake Server Management Shell guru, um, make no mistake, all of that help that is written for every one of those PowerShells, Greg writes every one of them, all 700 of them. Um, we've got, uh, and I should mention my manager, obviously, Chloe Broussard. Uh, wonderful person, great to work with. She is absolutely an advocate of us being able to get done what we do. Uh, very, very supportive. Um, Rui Maximo, who I'm sure a lot of you know, he's our, uh, uh, he's our, uh, principal writer. Very, very involved with uh, uh, making sure that you guys have got a lot of deep, deep and depth technical content. Um, Jack White, who uh, uh, essentially is the owner of all of Group Chat. Uh, myself, I, I do all of the edge server documentation, anything external access. Uh, Ellen Zer, who has a lot of hats that she wears, uh, part of which being Active Directory. Uh, there's also Mitch Duncan, who is our supportability and our, our migration guy. Um, Michelle Martin, who does a majority of the client stuff. Uh, Mintz, she, uh, uh, she works with Michelle on client stuff. And I'm going to forget uh, some of the client people. There's, I, I don't work with the client folks as much as I do the server, and I feel like, uh, well, Susan Bradley, oh my goodness, how can I forget Susan and Jim Bradley? Oh, we can't, can't forget them. No, awesome work there. Yeah, yeah they, they, they are the folks that, uh, that are the heart and soul of, uh, uh, of Next Hop and that whole larger outreach program. And uh, Susan has been the longtime content manager for a number of uh, efforts, including the Link Server uh, Res Kit. Uh, so if if I forgot anybody and you're listening to this, um, I apologize deeply. Um, I don't think that I did, but regardless, all of the Link writers server and technical you guys rock yeah it's good, it's good to hear some of those names they're some of the names we see ping up on emails and blog posts and stuff so it's good to know who sits where and who does what that's cool stuff yeah um so, so you mentioned uh, supportability there so that's interesting um mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if this is, this is strictly your remit but how, how do the, the supportability figures come to be in terms of user count or what's the preferred topology and what's the maximum and minimum topology well, what's what's the product group actually has final bits, and when I say final bits, I mean I, I mean RTM. Um, we we have uh, uh, developer test people that uh, that go to work and deploy those final bits into their test lab. And they have a they have a number of different metrics that they are looking for based upon what they have learned through the development cycle, and what they're really do, looking to do is to verify and validate that the sizing guidance that we believe is actually realistic. Um, 
and we we take everything from a business model and uh, you know from my own perspective it's kind of easy to think of an 80/20 rule we're looking to pl- we're we're looking to provide value and the functionality for 80% of the potential customer base out there we know that there's going to be some customers that it, it doesn't matter how much we scale things, it may never fit. Uh, and those, it's, it's a hard thing. Anytime you're trying to develop and engineer a system, you know that it is impossible to please everybody. So when we're looking at sizing, performance, etc., what we're what we're looking to do is to provide realistic numbers that we know we can support based on hardware minimum requirements, software minimum requirements, and the 80% customer user base. If we can do that, We've done a pretty good job. Yeah, and I think that that makes sense. You're never going to get everybody. It's a, a silly goal to have that. So uh, yeah, hitting hitting the the most you can is going to be the the way to go, isn't it? Sure, absolutely. Cool. You know, and, and the whole thing is 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 like I said, we know that we cannot please everybody, but we want to put that guidance out there so that the people that feel like they didn't exactly get their requirements met can understand how they can scale back a little bit and still provide the feature and functionality that they need, right? So if if your requirements are that you need 8,000 users per FE, which is above our guidance, well, we'll provide you information on if you've got X number of users that you base that 8,000 per FE on, uh, Here's how you can separate that out in two pools so that you can still meet those goals, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it, 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 although most customer cases are similar, everyone's unique. So, you know, you still need some expertise there or be it in-house or via somebody else to kind of give you a bit of help with that. It's a, it's going to be baseline information, isn't it? Not final information, really. Hey, our, our consultants and our uh, PFA, PFEs and our, uh, our partner consultants all are very, very good at this, at helping our customers to engineer within our supportability guidance. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, I'm going to throw over to Justin. I think you had a couple of questions for Rick, Justin. Um, yeah, sure. So I'm uh, actually asking some questions that Exchange MVP uh, Johan Velgos had. Uh, so the first one he had was, um, how is a, a document bug actually filed? And then once it's filed, what happens to it after that? Well, there's actually a couple ways that this can happen. If if you are using that downloadable chum and you find something in the documentation that is, you know, you, you have a question about, you believe that it's wrong, or you look at it and you go, yeah, okay, this is just absolutely incorrect. Uh, there, there is this handy little feedback button on there that if you click that feedback button, it will go ahead and launch your mail client and it will populate the subject with the name of the topic plus a really kind of strange looking URI 
that uh, has a bunch of numbers and letters in it. Contained in that numbers and letters is the topic ID that we can use within our publishing tools, our uh, tool that we actually create the documentation with, so that we can pull that page up immediately. It also allows you, because, well, gee, it is either an Outlook or a mail that you're going to prepare to send, you can tell us exactly what the problem is. Like one of the recent ones that I had uh, was, you know, Rick, were you aware that TCP 443 talks to inbound 50,000, the 50K range, on an associative edge server on a federated federated partner? Oh, okay. Well, interesting. I actually knew that. Somehow it failed to get into the documentation. So it gave me an opportunity to go back in and fill in that documentation. Now, once you you send that email, it goes to either LinkDoc for 2010 or LinkDoc 2013, which are the actual aliases. So LinkDoc at Microsoft.com or LinkDoc 2013 at Microsoft.com. It goes directly to our uh, bug alias. And we assign an internal product studio bug to track that, and then it gets assigned to the appropriate content owner, myself, Chris, Seth, whoever might actually own that content. And then it becomes up to them to go ahead and close and resolve that bug. So you can. Okay, so is it? You, uh, I was sorry. So, sorry to interrupt, but. Those uh, email aliases are the same email aliases that you can use if you find uh, an issue with online documentation on TechNet, correct? Uh, Yes, absolutely, because the issue that you have with the TechNet is that the feedback button is going to allow you to provide feedback on the TechNet page itself. We have to use a totally different tool to go look at that feedback um, however, if you want to be sure that your, con- that your content suggestion or feedback is seen more quickly, don't use the feedback button so much on the TechNet page, but go ahead and send us an email at linkdoc or linkdoc2013. And I, I can attest uh, that the response is generally pretty quick. I know I... I sent something in a couple days ago about the decommissioning uh, uh, steps and uh, and got a reply from you, Rick, uh, I think either the same day or the next day. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we try to respond to those pretty quickly, at least to let you know, okay, here's how you can immediately solve that particular issue. We'll go ahead and update the documentation. And we try and, we try and get those done. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say that it's this far out, but uh, understanding that we're currently working on cumulative update documentation right now, uh, typically three, three weeks to get something resolved, and that, that varies by writer and what their workload is. Cool. Um, so just on that as well, like if, uh, say, a customer emails one of those aliases and says, um, I don't quite understand this particular subject. Um, I could I'd appreciate some more insight or something like that. Would those be handled in a similar fashion, or would that sort of take sort of less 
precedence to a an actual like error in the documentation? It it actually is uh, is treated one of two ways, Justin. You might uh, uh, the the writer, depending on exactly what uh, uh, what the content is, they may they may provide you the information directly, or um, you know they'll provide you the information directly and then take a look at the clarity in the documentation and get an understanding, was it actually a clarity issue or uh, was this potentially just a one-off thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on, the, on the other hand, some things have come in, and I'll, I'll point to the TMG thing directly. Uh, I've, I've known for quite some time what, uh, uh, what the roadmap was for TMG. So knowing that that was going to happen and knowing that there were going to be a flood of feedback come in, I started ramping some things up. And one of your MVP colleagues, uh, Drago, pinged me about doing a uh, blog article on setting up, uh, setting up and uh, deploying Apache as a reverse proxy. I told him, great. It's an idea that I already had. It was an article I already had in process. So, sure, I'll act as technical reviewer on that. Let's get this thing done so that we can get get that out there and start front-loading this. I have some others that are coming up, one of which is IISARR, um, which hopefully is going to help bridge the gap a little bit for people that want a Microsoft solution in front of Link. Uh, but a lot of these things that if it's, if it's more of a technical depth thing, and, and one thing that I should really stress is that we try and keep our documentation, the planning and the deployment documentation more to a 100 to 200 level because the core docs are really to help you get the product installed. They're not there to educate you on how it works at an atomic level. That's what NextHop is for. So if something comes in and somebody is asking a detailed technical depth, a real technical drill-down question, I'm going to want to work with somebody and possibly even the requester. Do you want to help me write an article for NextHop? Let's go, go over here to Susan and Jim. Let's propose an article. And let's get this thing published so that we can have it in depth out there for the people that want to use it. Now, the side benefit is the technical writers have the ability to go ahead and link to these next top articles in their topics. So for the people that want to go above that one to 200 level can just simply click the link and bring up the next top article. That's really the end to end model that we're interested in. Cool. It's, it's, it's really good that there's that crossover there between Nextop and the, the TechNet documentation. It sort of um, not so much fills the gap, but just gives gives end users another another way to learn more about the product. Yeah. And uh, just for some of the guys playing at home, um, can you just uh, elaborate on what IIS ARR is? Oh, sure. Yeah, IIS ARR. Uh, most people are probably familiar with IIS. Uh, Internet, Internet Information Server. Uh, 
ARR, on the other hand, is Advanced Routing Request, and it is a module that, and, and maybe to just back up a little bit, um, the difference between IIS 6, which was in Server 2003, and IIS 7, which we first saw in 2008, is that um, in IIS 7, we've got we've we've got this whole idea of a modular architecture. So essentially, plugins, if you will, right? You can go ahead and put something in the uh, stream of information that is being parsed through Internet Information Server, and you can have something go ahead and act on that. Uh, so there there are a number of different authentication module types. ARR is really a it's it's a proxy or a reverse proxy engine because you can write rules that tell it when this condition happens do this so that's one of the things that we can do with ARR is that we can in fact have IIS act as a very responsible reverse proxy and it does understand, because you're able to write the rules, it understands the rules that governs mobility in auto-discover, which is exposed by your Lake Discover and your Lake Discover internal DNS records. Cool. That's, um, that's really good to know, actually. It's um, great, uh, great news. There might be some sort of uh, you know, something on the horizon to fill the TMG gap. Absolutely. Cool. So we had uh, one more question from Johan, which was uh, this could be a bit of a contentious one. Is how is it decided if something is supported or not? Yeah, this this is a contentious one, and it's 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 one that we debate internally all the time. Um, the best the best way that I can uh, that I can answer this one, and probably the most politically correct way that I can uh, that I can answer it, is that supportability is decided by the product group. And I'm, I'm talking about the PMs, the devs, and the tests that actually write the code. They know what it was designed for. They know what the engineering direction was. And they know what the limits are. So when, when they decide what is going to be supported, uh, because all of us know that realistically, you can do something more with this software than what the product group and Microsoft might actually support. What they determine the supportability boundaries to be is, is it in our confidence level to be extremely close to 100% stable and predictable? If, if it is, then we include that into that batch of what is supported. Now, we, we always accept those challenges and those questions about why don't we support this? And I think it's also important to understand that the question about supportability is not so much as if if I if I do this thing that you don't quote state support for, am I going to be able to call into CSS into our 
uh, customer support system, right? You you call up uh, uh, you call up an you call up an engineer and talk to an engineer and say, hey, I need some help with this. Uh, are they going to turn you down because you've done something that is quote unsupported? No. And I think that's that this is extremely important to understand that the engineers always work on a best effort model. In other words, if you're calling in about a problem that has to do with a reverse proxy not working, but there's an edge certificate that doesn't meet the support guidelines, are they going to turn you down? No, absolutely not. Up until the time that they determine that that certificate on the edge server is specifically what the problem is, and the only way that we can determine if that's the root cause, is to change that certificate into a supported model. Now we're in supported model. If it works, we know what the problem was, right? If it still doesn't work, then we're going to continue to work down the solution path. But until we come to a point that we've determined I can't go any further until we get to a supported configuration, we're not going to turn a customer down. And I think that this is often misunderstood about what supportability actually means. Sure. Yeah, well, we had that. Um, uh, we... oh, yeah, go yeah, I mean, and that, that, that just is a, reminded me of something you were talking about because that, that was, you know, I think OCS before it and Link is one of those products where, you know, there's a lot more permutations that Microsoft can test, uh, you know, in the real world. And, and the kind of the whole DMZ network with Edge was always that one, like, you know, in a perfect world, in, a, in the truly supported, quote unquote, way, you know, you'd have an internal you know, NIC and an external NIC, and they'd be on two different subnets. But, I don't know about you guys, but I've worked in a lot of places where that's not the case. The DMZ is a flat network, and that's all you're going to get, and you got to get it to work. But that's one of those cases where it's like, you know, it's not technically supported, but if you call in with this configuration, they're not going to hang up on you. It's just that this is something that hasn't really been tested, so we're going to have to just, you know, wing it, you know. Well, let's let's take for an example, and I mean, this one comes up all the time. If anybody, you know, I I don't recall how many masters we have on the line here today, but if... If you go to the Link Masters training, Alan Shen will be more than happy to come in and tell you, <laughs> hey, by the way, when we designed this thing, we designed it for the optimal path to be for TCP and UDP 50K range to be open inbound and outbound. Now, naturally, we had a whole bucket load of security people absolutely freak out that you can't do that. You can't have a 10,000 port range inbound and outbound open. Well, you know, we can, we can get into all the philosophical and technical arguments about the fact that it's not really open, you know, with funny hand gestures around open. Um, <laughs> but it really doesn't matter. The problem is, is that the poison pill was already out there, and people were afraid of this 10K range. So, in fact, we don't technically support it for Link Server 2010 and 2013. Can you do it? Yes. Does it optimize the media path? Yes. So we, we, can, we can go ahead and have that big security discussion, but it's still not going to change anybody's mind. Is anybody from support going to turn you down? 
to troubleshoot that issue? No. If you come to a root cause that says, hey, well, we probably ought to go back to a support configuration and close these down so that, uh, you know, TCP and UDP are only open uh, outbound, okay, great, let's do that. Let's figure it out and move on. Once you're done and you want to open them back up, go ahead. My goodness. It is your system at the end of the day, right? I think it's uh, just chipping in. It's really good to hear that, Rick, because, like, that's the kind of advice we give to our customers is here's here's what Microsoft recommend, here's what we're going to recommend for you and why, but be aware if you talk to support, they might ask you to go back to this config or that config or replicate the issue if you get really stuck. That They'll always you know, do kind of reasonable endeavours to help you, but ultimately they might ask you to go back to the, the, the design they know works and is tested to see if that's the issue or not. Yes. And that that really that really is the most important message is we are not going to turn you away, but we might at some point ask you to make some changes so that we have a known baseline. And anybody that has done security testing, anybody that has done performance testing, understands baselines. That's what we have, and if we need to get back to a baseline just so that we can root cause something, that's really all we're asking to do. Cool. It's, it's really great to get some insight into the whole supportability uh, conversation there, Rick. Um, so it's fantastic. I appreciate it. Sure. So, uh, John, I know you've uh, got a question you asked to ask Rick as well. Yeah, uh, one of the questions I had uh, something we talked about I think well a few episodes back about just an MVP program and stuff like that. But so it, over time, there's been stuff that was sort of like a blog article, and then you know it sort of became like since nobody else else uh, answered that question, uh, that blog article kind of became the the basically the guidance, you know, sort of in an informal way. But over time, I've noticed and pinpoint zones was one of those ones. I think Doug Lottie wrote that article years, you know, many years ago for OCS. And that kind of became guidance, you know, the, the officially sanctioned, so to speak, um, in, in OCS documentation, or in, sorry, in link documentation. How does that process happen? I mean, I guess just curiosity, like how does, how do, does the, the, the documentation group, like, you know, see something that says, hey, you know, this probably would be the best way to describe what we want, you know, and, 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 and sort of vouch for, for lack of a better word, what we want to do and, and include that in the guidance. Any thoughts around that? Well, that's a good question. Um, that that particular guidance from Doug uh, became part of the Server 2010 documentation uh, simply because we ran into more and more customers that were having difficulty with um, the split DNS and creating those pinpoint zones. You know, it, it it wasn't it wasn't reasonable for them to set up a a traditional uh, split DNS with uh, uh, with separate zones. So they needed uh, they needed guidance on how to do pinpoint zones, which unfortunately is not something that you can do through the GUI. Right. So <laughs> that yeah, I, you know, hey, who'd have thought uh, that uh, the DNS CMD would be so functional and so valuable uh, to the to the link environment, but Doug figured out how to do it. So that uh, that blog article became because so many people were asking, 
it it became a part of the core documentation and you know we went and asked Doug do you mind if we use this and Doug said please my goodness yes absolutely um, so those external sources uh, though they you know a lot of times we will use links I know that there are a couple articles of Jeff Schertz's that oh, yeah. have been you know have been pinpointed in the lines uh, that have been pinpointed as, uh, uh, you know, incredibly relevant articles about how, how things work. One of the, one of the first articles that, uh, that I asked Jeff to, uh, uh, rewrite for next top was on the strong host versus weak host because people didn't really understand what that whole change was in, uh, uh, the networking model for the stack in 2008 and 2000R2 server, or 2008R2 server. So uh, people with Link were kind of questioning, okay, what is this weak host versus strong host thing, now that I actually have to deal with it? Um, and so I asked Jeff to rewrite that article. Jeff went ahead and did that. One of the things that I think that is kind of important here is that we have also realized that with with the advent of the next top site, this is content that is vetted by the very same people that vet our core documentation. So if you are reading a next top article, then it is as authoritative as the core documentation. And one of the reasons why we will directly link to next top articles within the core documentation. It is of the same quality, of the same relevance, and of the same technical value as anything that you will read in the core documentation. So yes, we do bring uh, we do bring other uh, articles in and treat them part and parcel as part of the core documentation. But it's also important uh, that uh, folks understand that if we're linking to something else in TechNet or something in Nextop, it's because it has been vetted under the same stringent rules uh, and review guidelines as uh, our core documentation. Awesome. That's a really good explanation. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And it's good to get, you know, kind of history on that kind of stuff. For, you know, for people that are listening that don't even know some of the names, I mean, we've had Elon on the show Um I know Jeff from being in Chicago from back in the day, but uh, it's 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 awesome just to see how this you know this community of people kind of it's building the product as it goes, kind of you know in a way. Uh, I think it's great. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, and Pat, you had another question as well, I think. Yeah. So the last question that uh, that we have on the list here is, um, what's it take to be a technical writer at Microsoft? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. Here's the reason why that's a loaded question. Uh, as I as I said earlier, I'm not I'm not the typical technical writer. Um, I I came out of I came out of consulting. I've been in the IT industry for oh goodness, going on 25 years. Uh, part of that time has been a systems engineer. Uh, part of that has been as an architect or uh, uh, you know just consultant uh, to be a technical writer at Microsoft 
your traditional person is going to have experience probably more in the writing skill professions such as uh, uh, you know such as English and composition etc uh, however having a sub skill set of being able to understand and translate complex technical ideas into verbiage that is understandable by you know the typical IT pro uh, we're, we're certain certainly not shooting for mom and pop but we are shooting for the 200 level IT pro who would feel comfortable going and sitting and absorbing and understanding uh, your your typical uh, tech ed presentation on link server so you know to be a technical writer um, I think you have to have a passion for writing and you have to have a passion for becoming really interested in the technology that you're writing about because if if you have no passion for what you're writing about it's going to show up in your writing I mean you know let's let's be honest uh, um, can't remember the guy's first name, but Patterson, the guy that writes about a bajillion books a year, uh, has a has a whole staff of writers that writes books under his name. If they weren't passionate about uh, the fiction that they were writing, they wouldn't be able to produce a book. And it's it's essentially the same thing about all of my peers and colleagues. We are all very, very passionate about the technology. We, we, you know, we, we to some degree live on discovery. We, we live on uh, wanting to understand more about uh, how things work. So, you know, could we, could we all write for that book series? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think that we all have. Uh, uh, you know the curiosity to be able to write for the how how things work book series and to be very very uh, comfortable in it. But we happen to write for Microsoft and we happen to write on the uh, Link Server, so we want to tell our all our readers how Link Server works and how Link Client works and how all of the ancillary pieces and the rest of the Office suite plays into this much bigger and much richer atmosphere, and especially as we've seen uh, with Link Server 2013, the marriage of all these products is nearly complete. And to me, it's fantastic. I, I love what I'm seeing happening. Well, great. Great. And that brings us to the end of our questions for Rick. Uh, and to the end of our episode this week, uh, we did want to mention uh, one event uh, that we'll probably be mentioning more and more as time goes on, and that is the Link Conference uh, happening in February. Uh, this past week, uh, they did announce who the keynote speakers were going to be, and that is uh, Tony Bates, the president of the Skype division, and Derek Burney, the CVP of the Link Engineering division. So those two gentlemen will be doing the keynotes uh, in February in San Diego. So uh, head over to uh, linkconf.com, 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com, and we'll have a link to that on our summary page. And we hope to see you there. We're working on some some good surprises for you guys. Uh, We'll be handing out some free gear and uh, and some other stuff while we're there. So hope to see you there. I want to thank my uh, co-hosts this week, John, Justin, Tom, and Dave, and, of course, our special guest, uh, Rick Kingsland. Thanks, Rick, for stopping by. Hope to have you on again. And we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. Follow us on Twitter at The UC Architects. Uh, Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash The UC Architects. And we have a group on LinkedIn. Our podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and your favorite RSS client like Outlook. See our website for links to everything. Hope to see you back with the next episode with Steve Hosting.